The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm pleased to have Aizel Kuchuksu, postdoctoral fellow at iPorts at the Faculty of Law of the University of Copenhagen here with us today. Welcome, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, lovely to be here. Aizel recently published a piece called Feynman in Luxembourg, Empirical Lessons in Asylum Seeker Vulnerability from the CJEU. So we're gonna talk about that a bit today amongst some other topics. How did you first start researching this topic? It's a, it's a piece that brings vulnerability theory into asylum law, which is something that is traditionally very category-based, right? That's correct. I was writing my PhD on how the judges at the European Court of Justice deal with asylum decisions from political philosophy perspective. And what I established two years into my PhD project was that two disciplines were talking about the same individuals and their fates, so asylum seekers, but they never really talk to each other. So neither the concepts that they use nor the topics that they went into when they were, when judges were deciding the decisions or when philosophers were talking about the rights of asylum seekers overlapped. And I was in a bit of a, in a, in, in a bit of trouble actually, because I didn't know how to bring those uh, two epistemic communities together. And I began to go to loads of lectures, to history lectures, economics lectures, and, and I coincidentally stumbled upon vulnerability theory there and realized that vulnerability is actually a term that both philosophers and judges used. And then I thought that I could use the theory as a bridge between the two, the two communities. And I think it worked really well. And ever since then, which is now six years ago, I've been working with vulnerability theory. How did you use vulnerability theory to bridge that gap between those two groups, between judges and philosophers or academics? I kind of established proxies for, for vulnerability. Marta Feynman articulates vulnerability from both the political philosophy perspective and from the legal perspective and try to, to argue, look, the judges are talking about vulnerability here, and you could read vulnerability in this theoretical way if you, if you have a little bit of imagination. So it was kind of a theoretical piece, although my empirics were, I had some empirics, those were all the judgments from the court. And it's not perfect, but actually I've been working on refining, refining it since, and, and that's, the, that's the article that you mentioned at the start which has been, which was a chapter of my PhD thesis turned into an article. And I think it's much better now and much more concrete and operationalizes vulnerability theory in the context of 
adjudication uh, before the European Court of Justice. What made you interested in asylum seeking in particular? I always volunteered with, with, with asylum seekers and, and migrants. So that was a topic that was of interest to me from the very start. And I always also worked with human rights. So it was kind of like a natural continuation of my existing interests. So I thought that it would be very interesting to try to engage with the topic from a more academic perspective and see what's out there. It's been a little bit on pause for, for a little while because now I'm working a little bit more with compliance and how the European Court of Human Rights decisions get implemented in, in, in um, the Council of Europe, Europe States, but it's a topic that I want to come back to and, and I have some ideas cooking up in my mind. <laughs> How does vulnerability theory change the way that you look at asylum law? I would say that, as you also rightly pointed out, asylum law and, and, and the process of, of, of processing of asylum applications is very category-driven and identity-driven. And vulnerability theory allowed me to interrogate the structures and the structural issues that are connected to the process of, of seeking asylum and, and more concretely to suggest ways in which that vulnerability induced, and, and here I mean human vulnerability rather than migrant vulnerability, induced discrepancy in our levels of resilience could be addressed so I think that it enhanced my ability to interrogate the existing structures and see, it made me see more colors than, than, than I could before, if I could use that metaphor. Can you tell me a little more about the process of writing your paper? Mm -hmm. I think that I mean, everybody, oh, I don't know if everybody, but at least I had this little dream that judges at the European Court of Justice would read my paper and kind of begin adjudicating questions related to asylum in a more vulnerability-informed way. I mean, that was also the idea with the PhD. Of course, we all have such ambitions. And, and actually, I have been contacted but by one judge and not at the European Court of Justice, but in just a in, in one jurisdiction that is covered by the court that was interested in, in uh, my paper. And then I, I, I sent it to him and I was very happy to see that to see evidence of at least one uh, adjudicator engaging with it. But but that was the start of it. And then I, I think I am always trying to operationalize vulnerability theory and, and come up with some kind of practical ideas as to how my argument that, that, that vulnerability theory requ requires more context-driven context-driven policies and co context-driven adjudication can, can work out in practice. So in the context of the, of the European Union, we have a lot of legislative instruments whose interpretation reach the Court of Justice of the European Union. And, and because 
legislative instruments at the European U Union level are, are often the result of a compromise between you know, 27 member states. They are quite vague, especially in like area like asylum, which is very, very politicized area. They're often left unclarified. So there's room in viewing them with, with particular interpretation. So I wanted to use that room to to, as an opportunity to suggest vulnerability imbued interpretations. More concretely in the paper, I offer a discussion of three of those instruments and illustrate how those instruments can be interpreted and applied in a way where the vulnerability, the human vulnerability of all asylum seekers can be accounted for. In their interpretation. I mean, it, it became a bit more complex now that I'm I'm describing it, but I'm really, really trying to be concrete and 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 intelligible to all kinds of audiences, really. So for example, in a procedures directive, I, I say that procedurally it would be important that the interpreters or the, the people who question an asylum seeker about their circumstances are also trained in a way that they can recognize that cer certain circumstances of these asylum seekers might require particular ways of questioning them and or refraining from triggering uh, language and so on. So it's quite concrete, and but I think I can, it can make a big difference if implemented. What were the three instruments? So it's the qualification directive, which basically describes when an individual qualifies for, for refugee status in the European Union for the so-called complementary status, complementary protection status. Then there is the procedures directive, which describes the procedures that accompany this process. And then there's the reception conditions directive, which which kind of describes the, the minimum level of conditions that are expected to be provided to asylum seekers uh, upon their arrival to the European Union. So what other kinds of interventions did you recommend? What were some of the policy recommendations in your paper? I was trying to be very concrete, and I think that already at the level of trying to displays the existing narrative of the liberal individual that is rational and requires no help from the state. Already at the level of trying to remove that narrative, you're actually making a huge, you're shaking the world of uh, legislators in the European Union. So I think that I was trying, I spent a lot of time in the paper trying to articulate the reasons behind vulnerability theory and why it makes sense and why the existing narratives don't make sense and also trying to explain why categorizing migrants as vulnerable as a vulnerable category of people and then depriving them of their agency and stigmatizing them is uh, is counterproductive before i even was able to then offer productive policy recommendations but I, but i would say that the recommendations were both in terms of displacing existing narratives and then offering uh, ideas about how these three instruments could be interpreted. So for one paper, <laughs> that, that was the contribution. <laughs>
So we usually ask guests on this podcast for an elevator speech. So in about 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? I would say that vulnerability theory postulates that vulnerability is the primal human condition and that it is universal, it is constant and embodied and embedded. And what this means is that as human beings, we are embodied, we inhabit bodies that condition our interaction with the surrounding world. And we experience the world depending on our age, health and ability, all of which fluctuate over time because we are embodied. We are also embedded in numerous waves of social and political structures in which we depend for resilience. And that resilience kind of helps us bounce back when we face uh, life challenges. And, and that re- for that resilience, we're often very dependent on our responsive state, which is one of the central tenets of vulnerability theory. And then if the person in the elevator is interested in hearing more, I, I continue to explain to them what I'm talking about, I guess. <laughs> That's an excellent elevator speech. Thank you. How is that different from the way that people currently look at the legal subject in in Europe where you are? I think that the law sees human beings in, in, in ways in which we are much more like corporations than in human beings. We are disembodied, we are rational, we are allegedly almost invincible and we don't need the interference of the state. And I think that, that that's kind of the, the, the way human beings are viewed by the law across Europe. But then you have states like Denmark, where I am based right now, where we have a welfare state. So the state is not necessarily this evil construct that interfere, interferes with your life to harm you. The state is actually there often to provide a safety net for you. So for me, it's very interesting also to think about how vulnerability theory actually plays out a little bit different when you, when you have, whenever you're in Scandinavia, for example, where, where countries are famous for having more social policies, so to speak. And that's something that I would lo- love to investigate more, actually, also in the context of the way we treat asylum seeker and seekers and migrants, because they're a special category, which kind of doesn't, isn't incorporated into the welfare state. So that kind of breaks this whole idea that we are a little bit better at treating or accounting for people's vulnerability. So that's kind of a future direction that I'm that I'm um, delving into, I think. That's interesting. So is that part of your current research? Um, uh, not as of yet, but it actually is something that I'm thinking about more and more because I'm 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 looking into Denmark in a little bit of a different context. And Denmark actually stands out in the way it is treating. Uh, and legislating around asylum and it stands out not always in the best possible ways so I've been thinking about how I could look at that through vulnerability theory 
But I, I, if I could say how I'm looking at vulnerability theory now, we've just I've just co-written actually another paper that managed to come out before the paper we're discussing with you because the process was kind of faster for some reason on, on how vulnerability theory could be used to think about the procedures at the European Court of Human Rights, how we can make them better for applicants. And, and it was in a, it was for an um, anniversary issue of the Nordic Journal of Human Rights. And the question was, what's the future of human rights? And then I was like, vulnerability theory. <laughs> so I managed to plug uh, an idea and then they were happy with it. So I co-wrote with, with two lovely colleagues of mine, a paper that's already out there. So, and I think makes kind of an innovative argument, even though I feel like I've, I talk about vulnerability theory a lot. So yeah, it's, it's everywhere in my research right now, I feel. Can you tell me more about that other paper? Yes, definitely. I would love to talk to you a bit about that as well. So our paper is called From the Vantage Point of Vulnerability Theory, Algorithmic Decision-Making and Access to the European Court of Human Rights. And it's out with the Nordic Journal of Human Rights for its anniversary issue. And I co-wrote it with Zuzana Gujimirska and Salome Raun, who are two colleagues of mine at at ICORS, at the Faculty of Law at the University of Copenhagen. And the idea about the paper came, uh, came out when we all saw this call for papers on the future of human rights. And we all knew that we kind of wanted to write about it, but we didn't know how to do it exactly. And then I wasn't sure that there was a paper there, but I said, why don't we try to think about it from a vulnerability theory perspective? Because for me, that's the future of human rights. And then uh, we were in a room and, and kind of tried to brainstorm the idea behind the paper, which in the end ended up being quite interesting because Zuzana has expertise in the, procedure of the procedures of the European Court of Human Rights and Salome has expertise in the context of the African Court on Human and People's Rights. And we knew that we kind of wanted to angle the paper in a way that said that there is actually something to be learned for the European Court of Human Rights from the African Court of Human and People's Rights. And then we started compa uh, comparing procedures and realized that the African Court on Human and People's Rights actually has some lacks uh, in certain respects, more lax procedures when it, when it comes to the standing of applicants and jurisdiction in certain respects, which allows it to to really be more responsive to the circumstances of applicants if they haven't been able to submit an application within a particular time period or for, for whatever reason. And then I came with the theoretical framework of how we could use actually Professor Feynman's ideas about vulnerability theory and social justice and how institutions need to be reformed in a way that cuts across generations because that's how you, that's what social justice means in her terms. And in the end, we, we managed to, to build an argument that through the vulnerability lens, one could see how the European Court of Human Rights could become more lax in its very, very stringent applicant conditions 
and still ensure justice and still ensure all these concerns it has if it then uses algorithmic decision-making in applying the procedures to its inadmissible cases. I mean, it's a little bit of a complex argument, uh, but we have kind of spelled out the steps of how it will, how it would work. And, and it passed through peer review, <laughs> several peer reviews. So I think that we managed to make it convincing enough. And I'm very happy with, with uh, what we came up with. So that's, uh, I'm very happy with it, yeah. And we are going to present it actually at the Center for Human Rights in Pretoria. Uh, I think it's gonna be online, but I'm very happy that they're kind of interested in hearing about it too. Yeah, when will that presentation be happening? That is in September, at the start of September. I think it's maybe the first or second, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we're all, I think none of us, are going to go in person, unfortunately, but uh, but we will present online. And the the con the conference is on tech technology and human rights. So our our so our uh, decision making AI decision making angle uh, fed really well into the idea of the conference. Yeah, that's so interesting to have this algorithmic decision making. Yeah, I mean the thing is, you know. I think, and, and I myself, and also am also very skeptical on the substantive um, on the substantive part of this of the decision making, and I don't think necessarily that we are there yet. But there is also this idea in philosophy that if you can act, you if if you can act, you should act, and you should be compelled to act. And I I feel there's this problem before uh, the European Court of Human Rights, which is that. They're coming, there are way too many incoming applications, which is already harming applicants' right to an effective remedy and applicants' right to, um, to fair trial. So if they can use algorithmic decision-making and already the president of the court has said that this is kind of on the agenda in a procedural way. So in just seeing whether uh, an application is within the deadline and an application has been submitted, an application form, has been submitted in a way where all aspects of it have been filled out. If just this processing is uh, outsourced to, to an algorithm, the, um, so much time will be freed up for actual substantive decision-making. But what we're saying actually is that we can use the time that has been freed up by recourse to algorithmic decision-making for um, the, um, the people at the court to actually go through the rejected applicants on formal criteria and see whether the reason for the rejection wasn't something that is context dependent and whether taking context into account would compel them to send the, the application back into the uh, admissible bank of cases. So that's, I think the true novelty of the argument is that it we're using algorithm decision-making to point their attention towards those cases that would have been rejected on purely formal criteria, even though perhaps substantively they had virtue. Yeah, that's very innovative. That's very innovative that you're using this, you're using technology to do that kind of like formal yes or no decision-making based off of these really stringent standards to then direct human attention to actually kind of question those standards mm -hmm. and say, should those standards apply 
within this specific context. Exactly. That's so beautifully human. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I, I think it was, yeah, I think it really became something that I myself was also very, very, very surprised and happy with. Um, because it's actually this idea that we can use them, we can use all this free time for them to just double check what were the reasons behind these rejections? Because they will get so much more free time if, if thousands of applications, they don't, because right now, uh, this process of rejecting application is happening manually. Um, so we reject them with an algorithm and then you can just use this manual human power to, to double check. <laughs> and it would still be much quicker than what's going on right now. Right. Is our is our prediction, but you never know how it works in practice. How has that been received so far? It's only it's only been out for a very short period of time. I think maybe just the last week. Okay, so not uh, response yet. But but uh, but I'm I'm very yeah I'm I would be very happy to to hear some responses, and I'm very curious to see what people think because I haven't seen it done this way before hopefully also after the the conference where we're presenting it we'll have some feedback and we are we are actually thinking of having a follow-up paper on that with one of our colleagues who does focuses on 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 algorithmic decision making and see if we could articulate something much more even more concrete than that how it would work in you know in uh, in the language of zeros and ones <laughs> we'll see well, that's a very exciting project. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit about your background? What made you interested in asylum? What brought you to study the law? And why mm. have you ended up seeking out what sound to me as very like humane, heart-centered solutions? Mm. Well, thank you for, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you have that kind of perception of me. Um, I'd say that I grew up in a family where um, both of my parents had in their own ways experienced the, um, should I say, the bad side of the law in the sense that my mom is from a, a, a minority in the country where she's from and my dad is also. A minority and 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 we have always kind of had these conversations about the power of the law and what justice means and probably in a very romantic way uh also because you know being a lawyer you could fight injustice and and as a child you kind of start having these ideas that you could you know help fix it for your parents or something like this and 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 then I was um, I was intrigued by the law, but also by by um, by literature a lot. So I, I I read a lot growing up, and and also a, a lot about a lot about literature where the law was the subject of of, of the um, plots. And and the more I thought about it, I was kind of split between law and literature and eventually decided to go into studying law because I was volunteering a lot with, yeah, with, uh, with, with asylum seekers and other, other causes, let's put it like that. 
and the rest is history, <laughs> basically. I'm very happy to, to be in academia, actually, because when you do law, you could be a practitioner. You could also do something that's totally not law-related. That's, that's how we were always sold the law degree. You know, you could do whatever you want afterwards. And I think there's a truth to that. But uh, at the end of the day, I was very lucky with some great supervisors and great teachers and, and ended up choosing academia. And I didn't never look back, so to speak. But I hope, I really hope that the things that I write about can have some kind of impact eventually, because we always worry about that as well in academia, you know, who, who, who even reads, like, you're lucky five people read your, your paper. I mean, I think Feynman's um, contributions are evidence of it really going well, you know, it's really has captured the, the imagination of of scholars around the world, but I think it's also because it's so intuitive and so true. What impact would you like your work to have long term? I think I'm, I would really like to kind of contributing to more humane asylum policies, actually. I'm thinking of ways in which vulnerability theory can help me on this journey. And ultimately, I would love to, to see my ideas informing some kind of policy changes at the national level or at the EU level, or we dream big and then the rest is not in our hands. <laughs> this is true. Well, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your personal background. And thank you for, for, for asking. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about today? I would only say that if if anybody who listens to the to this podcast is curious or about my work or wants to to converse with me discuss with me i'm very i would be very happy to to talk to them i'm very open to talk to them and and i'm always curious to think of to hear about other people's work with vulnerability to read about the from the vulnerability and human condition initiative all the digest about different ways in which people are engaging with it so i would be very very happy if if that were to be the case so please do not hesitate is there anything specific that you'd like listeners to remember about our conversation today i think that it would just be that I feel that we're fighting the good fight, so it's worth continuing to engage with the theory and think of ways of, you know, spreading this idea of, of, of kind of replacing this misleading perception of human beings as, as, as rational, independent actors that, that do not want any kind of help and do not need it, and to kind of embrace vulnerability embrace our vulnerability in a way that is productive for for how we engage with each other and how we engage with the world and think about it on a day-to-day -day basis well thank you so much for being here today this is such an interesting conversation thank you so much for reaching out and for having me this has been an episode of voices and vulnerability expect a new episode every month if you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. 
I'll leave a link to ISIL's email address in the description box. Thanks for tuning in.